You're listening to the Upper Room Frisco podcast. To learn more about UR Frisco, please visit upperroomfrisco.com. Um, so I was in Mississippi this week with my, my wife's family, all my in-laws, and I uh, got to take my son, Archer, and Avery, and uh, get, get to take uh, her to meet her. She had never met her papa, which is my wife's grandfather, who's known as Papa, formerly Papa. And... Uh, uh, which was just a cute thing. My son loves his papa. It's it's like one of the most special things because he's his great grandfather and he's getting older. And so I just so appreciative that he's going to grow up knowing his papa. And, and I, I pray that the same thing will be true for my daughter, Avery. Um, anyway, uh, he's a, a believer and probably the only active witness of my wife as she was a child growing up. Uh, like he actively would tell her about the gospel. She would go to, to meetings at, at his house when they would have people come over and do Bible studies and there were charismatic events to which my wife was so young, she just thought it was some sort of normal thing because you only know what you grew up with. Um, uh, but, you know, he goes to a church and, and now he's at a, a, at a sort of conservative evangelical church where um, anyway, they don't necessarily get to practice the gifts which bothers him and my wife had pointed out to me that he was reading a book and about the, um, I can't remember, it was, it was End Times or something along those lines. But I went over to just check it out, sort of, you know, be a little nosy to find out what he was reading. And it was one of those, like, eschatology books all about how the rapture's coming and, you know, you need to tell your family about the rapture so that when you're suddenly gone and vanished, they're going to know that Jesus took you and come to faith and all that. And I remember being a kid, as a 15-year-old, my young life leader, uh, gave me the book Left Behind. Any of you read that book, Left Behind? We all read that. That was like the pop eschatology, the, the pop teaching of uh, end times in the, the 90s. Anyway, I remember reading that book and, and uh, convincing my mother how important it was that she read this book because I was the only believer in my family. And so, because I knew that if my mom would just read this book, that if, if I disappeared, She'd suddenly know, like if she found my clothes in a pile in my car. Oh, come on. It's not like I was the only one who thought this. You're all, you're all laughing, but we all felt this way. How many of you, come on, be honest with me. How many of you were like, you, you really thought that that's the way it was going to go down? Uh, <laughs> I, was, I was 16 years old, and I, I, had, I remember I came home. My mom actually did read it, and... Uh, I came home one day, and I, I couldn't find her in the house, and I walked into her bedroom, and, uh, and I saw her, <laughs> she laid out her clothes on the bed, <laughs> she had her shoes there, and like a little hairpin, and like, you know, <laughs> I, she went above and beyond, there were gloves, it's like, you don't wear gloves, uh, <laughs> But she laid it out there. She's hiding in the bathroom, just cracking up, you know. <laughs> and I was, like, very insulted by this, you know. I just took this so seriously. Uh, it's so funny. Like, I remember, it, that book was so motivating. Uh, and and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come against that theology quite hard tonight, but not to hurt you, but to kind of, you know, let you in on the laughter that was me and my thinking growing up. Um, but, it, you know, as a, as a good evangelical, all we knew was evangelism. We didn't know about the kingdom of God. And, and 
for most of us, or at least for me, I, I thought the kingdom of God, when I read that, my, the first book I ever read was Matthew. And um, because I was given, when I was given a Bible at, at uh, 16, it just had the Psalms, Proverbs, and the New Testament. I didn't even know there was an Old Testament, like honestly. I didn't know that, the, that there was more to the book that I was missing. Um, which is funny because when you think about the disciples and them teaching people the scripture, they didn't teach the New Testament. Did you know that? The disciples didn't have the New Testament to teach from. So they were teaching the Old Testament, which apparently people think you don't need. Um, just crazy how that works out. But, but anyway, I, I'm kind of on a rabbit trail. Um, you know, so I got my little, you know, Psalms, Proverbs, New Testament thing and started reading in Matthew because that was at the very front of the book, right? And, uh, <clears throat> and I remember I'd read the word uh, kingdom of God. Now, as a, a brand new Christian who had never, I mean, I, I wasn't even, I don't even know if I would say I was a Christian at that point, I mean, I, whether I was or wasn't. I, I was, it's like that C.S. Lewis quote. How many of you know about C.S. Lewis's salvation story? How many of you know who C.S. Lewis is? Yeah, I probably should ask that one first. He wrote The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and he was a, a famous theologian, uh, part of a little group of theologians called the Inklings, which I kind of nerd out about. Anyway, uh, he tells a story how he was on this road, and he didn't believe that Jesus was the Son of God, but when he, when he arrived somewhere on the journey, and he couldn't tell you exactly when it happened, but when he arrived, he knew that he believed Jesus was the Son of God. And so the, the transition from when he believed to, or when he didn't believe to when he was a believer, there wasn't like a single point that he could point to. It was a, it was a, it was a process. Same was true for me. But, but as a new believer or somebody coming into the faith, I would read that phrase in the Gospel of Matthew, kingdom of God, and I always thought it was talking about heaven. Um, how many of you, I mean, just curious, in your upbringing, you were taught a couple of things about eternal life, uh, that it was, thank you, Jeremy, yes, you were taught things about eternal life, I get that. Uh, it's like he just wants to support me, so his hand is already up there, like, yes, Michael, I did, yes, I got your back. Uh, <laughs> my boy. Um, <laughs> Thank you. Now, you don't have to do that anymore, please. Um, <laughs> anyway, how many of you were taught one of two things? That uh, when you die... You either go to heaven or you go to hell. How many of you were taught that? Just curious. Now, how many of you are taught that it's either going to play out that way, either, you know, you die and go to one of these places, or uh, the rapture is going to come and take you away to heaven? How many of you are taught the, 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 both of those two things? Okay, so that's, that's, how many of you weren't taught those things? Okay, very few of you. Most of us were taught that. Ironically, the Bible doesn't teach a whole lot about a going to somewhere. Did you know that? Like this idea of going to heaven as your final resting place is not, a, I mean, not that it's, it's not in Scripture in a temporal sense, but, but actually the final destination in Scripture of mankind isn't heaven. Did you know that? Now, all of you are nodding your head, and you're like, yes, that's right, preacher, preach it. But, I mean, like, did you know that, the, like, what the scriptures actually teach on this, it, it's, it's not like that. Um, now, you do see, you know, the, the thief on the cross, and Jesus tells him, today you'll be with me in paradise. So there is certainly a, a place that we go to when we die, but, but that place is just temporary, this sort of disembodied place. Um, 
I'm not doing a really poor job of this, but let me, let me back up just a second. Let me just throw some things out at you here. Um, I think what we believe about our future destination is incredibly important because it has to do with how we're going to live life now. It, it really does. And, and to see how those two things play together, I'm, I'm hopefully going to bring that into a really sharp focus, and then we'll take some time for question and answers. Um, and I'll have Jeremy come up and just sort of help me on that one, because I don't know how prepared I am for your questions. Um, uh, our culture at large is obsessed with the afterlife. And I mean, it probably always has been on some sense, but I think it's been even more, more popularized as, as this world has gotten increasingly more violent. Um, in the United States, we've been shielded for a lot of it, at least my generation has, uh, up until 9-11. You know, for, the, for our grandparents' generation, they weren't shielded from that at all. They were in World War II, World War I, uh, Korean War, Vietnam War. I mean, they saw all kinds of stuff. But for, for my generation, largely, we've been, been largely uh, ignorant of, of death and, and the reality of an impending death um, and, until 9-11 happened. And that sort of reshaped this culture. Um, and you see that the, the, the way people believe today about the eternal life has also changed. And, and you, you see it, and I change, say change historically, um, this idea that we're going off to a place called heaven, um, that, it's, that it's not a... Uh, I'm doing a really horrible job of this. I'm just going to read you what I wrote because it's a whole lot better. Um, uh, you have to read out loud. Yeah, I know. <laughs> deciding one of it, Robert. More Jeremy, less Robert. Come on, man. Some of you are like, that preacher is so cavalier up there. You know, he just doesn't take the church seriously. No, I, I think church should be one of the most joyous places you get to go to. Um, so, all right, all right. Okay, let me just, here's some assumed evangelical beliefs. I'm just going to read it off, okay? We take for granted the belief that the New Testament's main source or conception uh, of our eternal destiny is heaven or hell. Um, most of this has been popular, popularized by Dante's Inferno. I know that was a huge, huge source, although it didn't all originate with Dante's Inferno. Um, when you think about the, the word kingdom God in the New Testament, it's not necessarily about a final resting place. The majority of references of kingdom of God or kingdom of heaven in Matthew and Luke in particular, Luke will use kingdom of God, uh, Matthew will use kingdom of heaven, and it's because of the different audiences they were speaking to. But those, um, that phrase throughout the New Testament very seldom has to do with a place that someone's going to. Almost every instance of those, of those words being used in Scripture refers to a change in uh, rulership, a change in authority. Now, you can imagine as, a, as a, a Jewish people living in the time of the Roman Empire, the Jewish people were a subjugated people. They'd been conquered. They were being dominated by the Roman Empire. They considered their Roman Empire to be the Roman oppressors of their, of their day. You know, today in our culture, I mean, our, our oppressors is whatever political community we disagree with, uh, whoever happens to be in office that's not ours. Um, I mean, we do kind of think that way, and it's actually kind of crazy to think about. But, but the reason I'm, I'm, I'm going in this direction is because I want you to see how important current, current affairs actually are and should be to Christians. 
which I don't think, for the most part, Christians think a whole lot about. For instance, how many of you were thinking this week about global warming? Anybody? No, because most of us think this whole earth is going to be burned up and go to hell in a handbag and we're going to go to heaven. That's the way we think of things. So when it comes to global warming, like, oh, well, that's not a big concern of ours, right? But actually, when you read about it in the scriptures, we're talking about uh, heaven is actually a here and now kind of thing. It's about a change in authority and a change the way this world is actually going to be run. The current world order, it needs to be overthrown. And Jesus went about doing those very things to overthrow the current world order. I'm not saying let's have a political uprising. Matter of fact, Jesus didn't even do that. When, when, when they tried to take him by force and make him king, he refused. Did you know that? They tried to do that. They tried to take him by force and make him king. When, uh, when he was brought before the ruling authorities at the time, just prior to the crucifixion, they asked him, uh, people say that you're the king of the Jews. What do you have to say about this? He says, my kingdom's not of this earth. My kingdom doesn't even belong to this realm. Not once did Jesus raise up a sword against the Roman oppressors like the Jewish people would have liked. And believe it or not, there were a lot of false messiahs at that time, and all of those messiahs uh, um, contributed some sort of violent force to overthrow the Roman oppressors. Do you know how Jesus chose to overthrow them, overthrow the Roman oppressors and the oppressor known as Satan, the one who, who sort of embodied the power of the entire world? He laid down his life and died on a cross and then rose from the dead and conquered death. Now, his means by which he was overthrowing the world looked completely different. And I think today in our culture, we've lost sight of what the meaning of the resurrection actually is. The, the, the start of the Christian year most often is Christmas, where the start of the Christian year really should be the day of resurrection. Uh, Easter Sunday. Why? Because that is the day when we enter into his permanent rest. See, throughout most of, of uh, history, man works six days a week and rests on the seventh, right? Well, for the believer, did you know why church changed from being on Saturday? You know that church, like temple meetings, Jews used to worship on Saturday, not on Sunday. Did you know that? That that that. It's kind of funny because in, in our culture, everything closes on Sunday, right? Chick-fil-A is closed, people. You don't, you don't get your good chicken on, on Sundays anymore. That is not at all the reason why uh, church got moved to Sunday. As a matter of fact, the reason they, they, the whole Sunday thing started was because Saturday was a Sabbath. But then Jesus died and rose from the dead, and he entered into heaven, and he gave gifts to men. But we were supposed to enter into Christ which Jesus, when he died on the cross, he said the words, it is finished, right? That means there is no more work to be done. It was finished. All the work was completed on Calvary and on the resurrection. And so now we enter into a permanent rest. The reason why they started meeting on Sundays was because now they were entering into a permanent rest. They were actually doing it not just Sunday, but every day. They would gather together, have communion together every day because they were entering into a permanent state of rest. Did you know that? Whereas before we're striving to attain eternal life, striving through dead works, they're leaving behind dead works and entering into a permanent rest of Christ where all blessing now resides in him. 
Now you're literally dying to this world. You're laying your life down to the cares of this world, and you're living for one to come. Now, that doesn't mean that the one to come suddenly is going to happen in a distant future day, although it is. It actually started the day you believed. The day you believed, you entered into rest. I'm throwing a lot of weird stuff at you, and I'm going to hopefully pull this all together and make some sort of sense of it. Here's some things that we've been talking I mean, just some, some popular literature songs that we sing. How many of you know the song Away in a Manger? Any of you sing that this Christmas? How many of you love that song? Come on, be honest. Love that song. It's a good song. I love doing Christmas songs. I can't wait to... I, I didn't get to grow up with Christmas songs. Uh, well, I mean, uh, Christian ones. I grew up with secular ones. Jingle Bells, Frosty the Snowman, all that. But I didn't grow up with the Christian hymns that we sing at Christmas. Um, but here's, here's a lyric that you should just, just pay attention to this. It says, and fit us for heaven to live with thee there. Is that true? You see how it is popularized that it's about going somewhere else? Uh, how many of you like the song, How Great Thou Art? That's one of my favorite hymns. It was written by a... a I think a Swedish man, if I'm not mistaken. But here's, here's a lyric in there. Check this out. When Christ shall come with a shout of acclamation and take me home, what joy shall fill my heart? Take me home. Question for you, where is your home? Where is your eternal dwelling place? Is it in some other location? According to the scriptures, when you... When you read about heaven, like uh, Revelation chapter 4 and 5, right? We see this whole throne room experience where, where the heavens are opened up to John and suddenly he sees this vision of all these elders and they've got crowns and Jesus is sitting on a throne and there's a sea of glass and, and there's these four living creatures that are sort of around the throne. And all these elders take off their crowns and they lay them at the feet of Jesus. Most people have been taught that this is going to happen one day. We're going to enter into heaven and there's going to be myriads of people and this is all... No, guys, guess what? That wasn't something John was seeing for the future. That was something he was watching happen in his day. That was a living reality for John. That means it's a living reality for us today. There is this spiritual thing, this, this heavenly realm, that's happening alongside what we see that is physical. And both are good and important. Uh, and it sort of all culminates in, in Revelation chapter 21 and 22 where it says, and he saw the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem coming down to earth. So where does man's final resting place, where, is, where does he literally make his new home? Well, he doesn't leave here. This earth is suddenly changed and redone. And, and heaven and earth finally have a marriage where there is no veil and no separation, where those two things live in constant union. New Jerusalem comes down from heaven, but it doesn't mean this earth suddenly disappears. This earth is actually here, and it's made new, just like you were made new when you believed in Christ. Um, the danger of, of thinking it's all about going somewhere is when you think that, it, well, actually, I'll, I'll read a quote from Karl Marx. This is going to be an interesting one. How many of you know who Karl Marx is? Ever heard of communism, communist manifesto? Okay. Karl Marx said, religion is an opium of the people. 
It's an opium of the people. Now, the reason he thought this was he supposed that oppressive rulers would use the promise of a joyful future life to stop the masses from rising in revolt. When your only hope is in a future outcome where suddenly everything's going to change, then your present life doesn't really seem to matter a whole lot. Now, I disagree with Karl Marx and most things, but, but, but realize I'm not preaching communism, uh, but I think his point is very, is true in that when we place our hope in some sort of distant future, we lose sight of the present and fail to act now. And there are a lot of issues that I think are, are facing the church today that we're largely ignorant of and we, we don't, we don't, really don't care about. Um, I love what my, my evangelical upbringing did when I did, when I was in Young Life and I, I read Left Behind because it gave me a very great appreciation for evangelizing and for uh, telling people about Jesus' death and resurrection and forgiveness of sins. Which, let's face it, those are what, what Paul talks about in Hebrews 6, the elementary teachings about Christ. Let me just go to uh, Hebrews 5 real quick. If you got your Bible, turn to Hebrews 5, uh, 11. Chapter 5, verse 11. This is the most disorganized sermon I'm ever going to give you. Uh, and then... Hopefully, we'll make some, bring some clarity through some Q&A. Concerning him, we have much to say, and it's hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. Now, this is Paul speaking to the Hebrew believers in Christ. And he's saying, concerning him, he's talking about Jesus, we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have a need for, again, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. You have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he's an infant. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have trained their senses to discern good and evil. Um, I think it's interesting that Paul is saying this to this community. He says, at this point, you all should be teachers. You should be teachers. Like, you've been in the faith long enough, and I've taught you the elementary principles about Christ. At this point, you should be teaching these to others, which I think is really cool. Is that meant that, like, Paul knew that, at that, that those believers should be passing on this information to create new believers and disciples of Christ. But he says, I, I can't go on to other things. Like, you have need to hear this stuff again. And then in, in Hebrews 6.1, he says, Therefore, leaving the elementary teachings about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation. So what are the foundation? What are the foundational things for Christians? Here we go. Foundation of repentance from dead works and faith towards God. The, the repentance and faith to God are two sides of the same coin. That's one foundational teaching that every Christian should know and understand and then be able to teach others. Um, of instructions about washings, that's probably baptism. 
And that's a huge one when you think about the Hebrew audience, because Hebrew, most Jewish people thought baptisms were mostly for those who were Gentiles who were becoming part of the Jewish nation. They're the ones who needed cleansing. The Jews didn't need it because they had Abraham as their father. They thought they were already included in the covenantal promises of Jesus. But they actually had need of baptisms, a baptism, because they didn't have faith in Christ. And so for them to be baptized was an incredibly humiliating, humbling experience for them. So instructions of baptisms, laying on of hands, has to do with impartation of gifts of the Holy Spirit, um, which he says is a foundational teaching. Foundational. Most churches have no clue about that. Laying on of hands. When was, I mean, how many of you grew up in, a, in an evangelical church where you never experienced anything supernatural? Okay, how many times did you see them lay hands on anybody? Very seldom. And that's also for commissioning into positions of ministry, which you probably saw some of that. And resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. Both of those two last doctrines in today's day and age are, are coming under major fire. Most people don't believe in an eternal judgment. Most people, like that, just in and of itself, they just throw off. And then also the resurrection of the dead. You see, we're still teaching about a place we're going to rather than us being resurrected in this world, like our bodies being resurrected. And we see this sort of play out. Uh, look, at, at, look at the statistics on how popular um, uh, burial ceremonies have decreased and how uh, cremation has increased. Matter of fact, it, it's fairly normal for us to see this in movies and to experience this with loved ones where many people, they want to have their bodies cremated and, and scattered over some part uh, or some place that had held significance for them in this life, which the meaning is pretty clear. Like, I, I want to be rejoined to the earth, which is not a Christian belief. Like, you won't find that anywhere in Scripture. As a matter of fact, Jews would have thought it reprehensible that your bodies would have been burned. Um, matter of fact, they, they, thought the, the, they believed in the resurrection so much that, that it was actually considered uh, uh, immoral to walk upon somebody's grave. You just didn't walk over the bones of somebody who had died. That was disrespectful and dishonorable because they were to be raised to new life. Um, and I'm not saying that cremation's wrong. I, look, I, I still believe in the new creation, that, that we've, we're new creations now, but we're going to get a resurrection body. We're going to put off what is perishable and take on what is imperishable, according, according to 1 Corinthians 15. Um, I, I don't have a real big moral stance on the whole cremation thing, but I think I'm just trying to make the point that, that our belief systems in this country have changed. Um, to where those things are more popular and a belief about uh, a resurrection of the dead has been largely lost, not just in, in our culture at large, but in the church as well. Like most people, their hope is in going to heaven rather than their hope being in the resurrection of their mortal bodies. Think about that. That doesn't happen much. Now, and again, this is a foundational teaching. Paul's saying, I'd like to give you something else but you still have need of this. Jude expresses something similar. If you go there, Paul talks about, uh, i just go to Jude. There's only one chapter. Uh, for those of you who've never read it, that's, you can finally read it and go, I finished a book of the Bible. Um, Jude, verse 3 through 4, and then verse 8. We'll look at those. Beloved, 
While I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. Can you see the same kind of talk here? Like, I intended to do one thing, but I actually felt the need to do something else. And here's why. Like, I intended to talk about our common salvation, like a, a celebratory letter to you guys to talk about the thing that we all have in common, the salvation that, not as a future reality, but as a present day reality. We, be, we are saved now, and we will be saved in the future. And being saved doesn't just include, like, the forgiveness and, and remission of sin. It has to do with everything in your life changing, us being recommissioned to be ambassadors of this earth, to take care and cultivate the earth, to be the, the, the imagers of God, the ones who, who represent him here in this world. <clears throat> said, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. Like he has to tell them to contend for it because it's being challenged. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for the, this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and dis- deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. This is, this is what these people who had crept in were doing. They were, they were creating a belief that it was okay to do whatever you wanted in your flesh, Commit any kind of sexual immorality because you're going to be forgiven. And, and this life doesn't really matter. What matters is the one to come. When, when your body, when you leave, when your soul leaves this body and you become rejoined to this eternal thing. It was a pagan Gnostic belief that really has crept into the church today. Um, here's, and it, it, read down in verse 8. He says, yet in the same way, these men also, by dreaming, defile flesh and reject authority, and revile angelic majesties. Now, some of this I see today, some I don't. But I do see people, a lot, a lot of people today, especially in the charismatic movement, making huge stands about the vision of their church, about uh, the doctrines they teach, that they'll teach their church, based upon dreams, rather than on the scriptures that we've been given. Like, you want to know what the foundational teachings of the church have to be? What Paul mentioned in Hebrews 6, which we just read. Those were the foundational teachings. And the teachings about Christ. Foundation. I don't care what your church's vision is. That's the foundation regardless. And, and no vision is allowed to, be, uh, to ignore those foundational teachings. But I, I don't know. I mean, I, I mean I, I'm being very pessimistic about the church. There's probably lots of churches teaching these things. Uh, so for, forgive me for sounding so pessimistic. But, but I'm, I'm sort of reigniting this thing because I want every one of you to move into maturity, to know the foundational doctrines, and to go on to become teachers of those things to the world around you. That was Paul's desire for, for the, this entire people group uh, that's called the Hebrews that this letter was written to. He said, by this time, you should have been teachers. Um, I don't know if, if most people that attend church today could actually uh, teach all those core doctrines. Believe it or not, I, I mean, most of you in the room probably don't, please don't ask me what they are because I don't really know. And so my hope is starting today and, and through the next couple of months to just kind of go through these core doctrines. And I know it's like in the charismatic world, the word doctrine is almost a, a dirty word. 
Uh, it's like you, you sometimes feel like you have to check your brain at the door because of all the crazy experiences. How many of you have felt that way? Come on, I know I'm not the only one. Like, that happens. And look, I'm obviously all about spiritual exercises and practices and, and prophecy and gifts of the Spirit. Like, I'm clearly about the supernatural and spiritual world. But I'm also very much about the doctrines that we are supposed to be passing down to every believer because we're supposed to be people of both the Word and Spirit. And those two things don't need to work in contradiction. Like, I've heard people say that you're supposed to be spirit-led, not mind-led, as if those two things are in contradiction to one another. Like, when he says, love the Lord with all your spirit, is that what it says? Yeah, your mind is actually included in that, right? And so knowing about Christ and the doctrines of Christ, that is loving the Lord your God with all your mind. Um, Sorry, I'm probably speaking out of a wound on that one. I've, been, I've just been so many times, you're just too heady, you just, you know, you just go too intellectual and talk too, too much theology, and I'm like, like it or not, these were important to Jesus and the disciples, they taught this stuff, so I'm just doing what they did. Okay, now concerning eternal life, eternal judgment, uh, come up here and help me, because I need it, uh, uh, and just feel free, Early church practice, it was actually normal for people to ask questions, not just to be spectators in the whole thing called church. Did you know that? There's a reason why in in Corinthians, Paul is speaking to the women. He says, hey, uh, go home. Don't speak in church. Go home and ask your husbands privately. I know that sounds really like harsh. He wasn't saying women weren't allowed to speak in general. What was happening is they were asking questions, and because women at that time period were uneducated, they were usually asking questions that most everybody in the room already knew the answers to. Did you know that? How many of you have been taught, hey, women aren't supposed to speak in church? Come on. Did that help, <laughs> what I just said? Did you know that? It's like, yeah, thank you. Just cripple half my army. It's yeah. Great. <laughs> that was not about women not being able to speak. It was about the fact that that culture, in that culture, women were not educated, and so they would come into church and ask questions, as was normal, to ask questions of the pastor or the preacher at the time, uh, but they were asking questions that would betray their level of knowledge. Questions that everybody in the room mostly already had the answer to, which is why Paul's saying, hey, look, go home. This is a practical thing. Go home, be informed, ask your husbands, let them inform you in private. So not so that you could stay uneducated, but so that you could catch up with the rest of the group. So Paul was all for the education of women and for women teaching. It wasn't, it wasn't a don't have women teaching. Does that make sense? Okay. Uh, so feel free to ask questions now. This is normal. <laughs> 